0: The book of Acts not only tells us about how the church began when the gospel was preached on the first Pentecost following the resurrection in Acts chapter two, though it does tell us that it also doesn't only record the fact that individuals responded to the gospel message in repentance and faith and had their sins washed away, though the book of Acts does include that. The book of Acts isn't just in our New Testament so that it can tell us about how many of the congregations that are later addressed and epistles that have been preserved in our new testaments how those churches started and how they began though that's also included in what we find and read about in the book of acts the book of acts tells us about the opposition that the first century church faced and more importantly how the first century church responded to that opposition you remember in acts chapter 2 it starts in verse 13 they accuse the apostles of being drunk because they're speaking in these languages that they hadn't studied previously And then you read later on in Acts chapter 3, they heal a man at the gate called Beautiful in Acts chapter 3 and verse 2. And Peter and John are persecuted as a result. They're told, don't preach in this name anymore or say anything about Jesus Christ. And the famous statement in Acts 5 and verse 29, we ought to obey God rather than men. The church is persecuted continually in the book of Acts. And yet they always respond rather than kill Christianity, persecution in the midst of it, the church was able to thrive and to succeed. By the time you get to Acts chapter six, you read the first seven verses right before the section that Perry just read for us a moment ago. And there's a crisis internally, a benevolence issue about how they're going to support a certain group of widows. They select seven men. They solve that problem. And then one of those men, Stephen, is lifted up as a mighty example. And Stephen is a unique person in the book of Acts and really in the first century church. Stephen's the first person in the book of Acts to preach a sermon outside of any of the other other apostles. So far, when you read the first five chapters of the book of Acts, nobody had preached except for Peter and John and the others. He's the first person in the book of Acts to be said to have done a sign or a wonder that we'll read about in Acts 6, 8 through 11. Other than the apostles up to this point, the only people who had done miraculous signs were the twelve. And he's also an interesting person who makes history in the book of Acts because he's the first Christian martyr. Stephen's the first person in the New Testament to die because he's a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, later, there'd be James and deeper into the New Testament times, there'd be Paul and there'd also be Peter. But Stephen was the first. But if Stephen were here tonight, surely he wouldn't want us just to study about the way that he died and really to feel sorry for him. He wants us to learn from what he did and then use it to better be able to serve God. And that's what we're going to do tonight, looking at how to be bold in a world of opposition. I don't know when's the last time I've been in an assembly when it wasn't included in the prayer. You just think about the types of prayers that are prayed. And it was prayed this morning by Robert. And I think for good reason that we want our world and our country to turn back to God. And people talk about the fact that the world has changed and it's not what it used to be. You can't talk to people about God and religious matters like maybe you once could, even from the time when I was baptized 14 years ago, June of 2009. Up till now, things have changed what people think about morality, what people think about the Bible, what people think about religious texts about salvation or about why we're here. All of those things have changed, and it makes it difficult for us to interact with other people that are not only indifferent to religion, but that may be in opposition toward us. And so we need to learn how to properly interact with them, how to do this. Do I bring up religion at Thanksgiving or Christmas? What do I say in the break room when I'm talking to people who may differ from me? Or what if somebody asks me a religious question and then they don't like the response that I give? We need to know how to interact with people and what God wants us to do in order to be faithful with him to him. And so that's why I'm preaching this lesson tonight so that we can look at the life of Stephen, notice the things he did and also what he didn't do and remain bold in a world that's opposing to us. It's not just about opposition from the outside. I find as our world becomes more irreligious, it becomes more of a challenge to hold firm to the convictions of New Testament Christianity. People start saying, well, you know, the pool's so small. So few people actually believe in the Bible. What if we just get ecumenical and go along with everybody who professes some form of biblical Christianity? Because after all, we've got more in common with them than with the others. And deciding to ourselves tonight, no, we're going to hold fast to what Jesus says. And even if the opposition comes from other people who claim to be religious, we'll stand bold even then. If you have your Bible tonight, go ahead and turn it to Acts chapter 6. And let's notice six of the things that Stephen teaches us about how to be bold in a world of opposition. Here's number one remember the power that is within. Acts chapter 6 tells us several things about Stephen. He's one of the seven that's selected, Acts 6 and verse 3. That means he had to be filled with the Spirit and with wisdom. Acts 6 and verse 5 says especially about him that he was a man of faith and also filled with the Holy Spirit. And then after he's selected as one of the seven, the apostles lay their hands on him and we're told then Acts 6 and verse 8 that he's filled, depending on your translation, you either have faith in power or grace in power in Acts chapter 6 and verse 8. But here Here's what we know. Stephen was a man that realized that the reason he was able to do the great things that he did is because there was a power abiding deep within him. The psalmist says in Psalm 62 in verse 11, once have I spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God. And if Stephen was going to stand in opposition to those that were persecuting him for his faith, he had to realize that the power that was going to be necessary to accomplish that work would have to come from outside of Stephen. It wasn't up to him and his own human ingenuity and ability to be able to overcome the opposition of the Jews. Stephen trusted the power of God that was within him, and we need to do the very same thing. Romans 8 and verse 31, Paul says, what shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Reminding ourselves that God actually is for us. Or 1 John 4 and verse 4, John says, little children, you are overcoming them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. The first thing we need to do to remain bold in a world of opposition is to remember the power that lies within us. Commentators get to Acts chapter 6 and verse 8 and they wonder about this faith or this grace that Stephen had. Is this talking about Stephen's attitude or is this talking about the miraculous measure of the Holy Spirit that was given to him by the apostles? Whatever you think about that, whether this is talking about Stephen's personal faith and the grace that he had or about the miraculous ability he was given, it all came from God. He was either operating with the miraculous gifts that God had given him or his spirit and character was shaped by the Spirit of God as he was influenced by it. Either way, he was transformed. And we can be as well. Think about the passages in your Bible that remind you about God's presence within Ephesians three in verse 12 says we have boldness and access to the heavenly father or Philippians four in verse 13 says I can do how many things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things. Why? Because Christ strengthens me, even remaining bold in opposition. Absolutely. And that's exactly what we see Stephen doing, not cowering back in fear, but rising to the occasion and being the person that God would have him to be. Now, when you read through Acts chapter six, verse eight, really down through verse 15, one of the primary influences for Stephen that allowed him to be bold and courageous. It comes up over and over again. It's about the power of the Holy Spirit in Stephen's life. And as New Testament Christians in the 21st century, we need to avoid two extremes in regard to what we think about the Holy Spirit. Some blame everything on the Holy Spirit religiously, everything they think, feel and utter. It points back to, hey, maybe the Holy Spirit's making me do this. But we also need to guard against blindly dismissing the Holy Spirit, except for mentioning on occasion that he inspired the word of God. The Bible says the spirit not only dwells within us, but he helps us as he strengthens the inner man. Ephesians 3.16. He's a part of the down payment for eternity to come. Second Corinthians five and verse five and knowledge of his presence in our lives will cause us to stand bold when everybody else in the world is against us. You you remember in The Lion King on that occasion when Simba stands before the hyenas and he tries to let out a major roar and it comes out as loud as a harmonica. He really can't muster up the courage to do it. But then his father Mufasa comes on the scene and roars as loud as a trombone. And what happens? Not only are the hyenas routed, but Simba gets new courage to stand before the opposition. It's amazing how the right kind of companionship can bring about courage within individuals that are present. You remember what David said before he fought Goliath in first Samuel 17. He says, God, who was with me when I destroyed the lion and the bear, that same God will be with me before this uncircumcised Philistine who defies the armies of the living God. As we interact with the world that opposes us, it doesn't matter how far our culture swings to the right or to the left. We need to remember the words of Jesus. Lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Matthew 28 and verse 20. Let that be our confidence. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Psalm 118 and verse 6. And that's what helps Stephen. The first thing we need in order to maintain boldness in a world of opposition is to remember the power that lies within. Here's number two. Speak with spirit filled wisdom. Turn your Bible to Luke chapter 21. I want you to see Acts 6 and Luke 21 at the same time. What we read and what Perry read for us a moment ago is in Acts chapter 6, as Stephen does these signs and these wonders, these individuals from various synagogues, in Acts 6 and verse 9, they stand up in order to oppose Stephen and his preaching. Notice Acts chapter 6 and verse 10 first, though. It says as Stephen starts responding to their opposition, they were unable to withstand the spirit and the wisdom by which Stephen spoke. You see that? They're saying, hey, no matter what these individuals said to Stephen, Stephen responded and they couldn't answer him. Where does that come from? It's a direct fulfillment of a prophecy Jesus gave to the apostles before he died and rose from the dead. Luke 21, 14 and 15. Jesus says in Luke 21 and verse 14, when the hour comes of persecution, don't think about what you say or what you're going to say. There will be given to you in that moment a spirit of wisdom and of correct courage. And you won't have to think about what you're going to speak beforehand. They won't be able to answer to you. Luke 21, 14 through 15. That's exactly what happens with Stephen in Acts chapter 6 and verse 10. Stephen spoke with a spirit-filled wisdom that his adversaries could not contradict. If we want to be bold in a world of opposition, we need to speak with spirit-filled wisdom. This does not mean sugarcoating the truth, but it also doesn't mean souring the truth as we try to boldly stand up for Jesus. You know, some people think tonight, you know, I really don't need this lesson. No matter what happens in the culture, I'm not afraid to speak up about my faith. I'm not worried about how to respond toward other people that disagree with me. I'm pretty bold and courageous and I'm ready to go out and attack the opposition. And as great as that might be, we need to make sure that in our efforts to be bold and courageous, we don't do an injustice to the one that we claim to represent. Surely we've all seen Christians who behaved in ways before that you just want to stand up and say, hey, they're not with us. Because of the way they respond and the things that they say in an effort to be bold and to be courageous, we might repre- misrepresent the Savior. And so, 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26, Paul says the servant of the Lord must not be quarrelsome, but gentle to all men, able to teach, patient and in meekness, instructing those who oppose themselves. If perhaps God would grant them repentance to acknowledge the truth and that they might recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who've been taken captive by him at his will. Spirit filled wisdom. What Stephen does here is impressive. It means they weren't able to answer what Stephen said. Even individuals that look from the outside, they look in on Stephen's conversation, his sound reasoning and his logic, his careful handling of the Old Testament. But on top of that, the judicious and gracious way that he delivered the message, they weren't able to answer him. You know what they have to eventually do to Stephen? They just start lying on him. Look at Acts chapter six and verse 11. They say he spoke words against Moses and against Jesus. And verse 12 down through verse 13 and 14, what they'll eventually say is he claims that this Jesus of Nazareth, whoever he is, is going to come in and change the customs that Moses delivered to us. They weren't able to answer the wisdom by which Stephen was speaking. So all they could do is misrepresent him. If we're going to stand in boldness against the opposition that we face in our culture, and our world, we need to speak in the same way. How often does the New Testament tell us to make sure that our speech is always seasoned with grace so that we might know how we ought to answer each person? Colossians 4, 5 and 6. Ephesians 5, 15 and 16. Paul says, see then that you walk circumspectly, walk as wise and not as fools, redeeming the time because the days are evil. As we interact with other people, let us remind ourselves ourselves. To speak with spirit-filled wisdom and not eventually stoop down into former tactics from our former way of living and say, well, if they can say something snarky about me as a Christian, I can say something snarky about them. Hey, if unbelievers think my faith is imaginary, I'll say something about them. At least we don't believe we came from slime and chance. We can say things that'll hurt them just like they can say things that'll hurt us. It never fails. Every April Fool's. Somebody's going to post Psalm 14 and verse one. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And while those things may get us pats on the back and laughs from other people who are already in our religious corner, I don't know that it's winsome toward those on the other side of the aisle. What Stephen does, he doesn't back down, he doesn't cower. But Stephen's interested in winning a soul and not winning the applause of others that may already agree with him. Stephen spoke with spirit filled wisdom and we need to do the same thing. In the 1960s in our country one of the things that the civil rights movement did in order to draw attention to the injustice that was being faced was they engaged in sit-ins some people believe these were the most successful tactics in the entirety of the movement sitting at these restaurants sitting at these seats and just allowing individuals to persecute them hurl insults it would become evident to everybody that was present that hey things aren't right things aren't going the way they should as the sit-ins took off college students really wanted to be involved in what was taking place but not just anybody could be involved. The leaders of the civil rights movement engaged in what they called social drama, which meant if you wanted to be engaged in any of the sit-ins, you had to undergo a sort of training. Because one move of retaliation, one bad word spoken, one raising of the fist, one outburst of wrath in the heated ap- time of persecution could upend the entire movement. And so they put you in these rooms and you go through social drama. They blow smoke in your face, slap you with newspapers, jostle your chairs, pull your hair and hurl all kind of insults. And if you so much as lift a finger, you were disqualified and could never participate again. They knew their response in those moments made all the difference in the world. And you had to be a part of the same mind if you were going to be in the same group. Stephen speaks with spirit filled wisdom as he doesn't stoop to the tactics of his opposers. And we need to do the same thing. What will help us do that? Number one, make sure we learn when to speak and when not to speak. There's a time to respond to religious questions and opposition, and there's a time not to. Proverbs 26, four and five. Solomon says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own sight. And then he says, don't answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. There's a time to speak and a time to remain silent. Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 7. Learn when is the time to speak. But here's number two. When you speak, make sure you say what is right. You need to know when to speak, but then when we speak, what should we speak? James 3 and verse 10, James says, Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing, my brothers, these things ought not so to be. We need to make sure our speech is consistent with what it is that we profess. Number three, we need to ask ourselves when we respond to opposition from other people, is this the way that God would respond? First Peter four and verse 11, Peter says, if any man speak, let him speak as the very oracles of God. That means our speech should mirror that of God himself. And we need to be asking ourselves, is this how God would interact with this individual? What Stephen does is he speaks poised. He speaks with wisdom and also with boldness and courage. He doesn't back down, but he also doesn't give in and become like that, which he ultimately despised. Here's number three. Boldness in a world of opposition means that we possess an in-depth knowledge of our faith. Acts chapter 7, verse 2 all the way through verse 50. In Acts chapter 7 and verse 1, after they make the accusations against Stephen, the high priest says, hey, Stephen, are these things so? In verse 2 down through verse 50 of Acts chapter 7, Stephen preaches the longest sermon in the entire book of Acts. As you read through the sermon, what you find is Stephen is at home in his Old Testament. He quotes passages like Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and Genesis 15, 13, and 14. He quotes Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6, Exodus 32 and verse one. He knows Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18, but even the prophets like Amos, Amos 5, 25 through 27 and Isaiah 1 and two. What Stephen's trying to show his accusers in this moment is he has not just jumped onto the latest religious fad that sprung up out of Jerusalem. Far from that. Stephen knows his Bible and he knows why he believes what he believes. And he stands before these individuals possessing an in-depth knowledge of the convictions that he holds. And if we stand bold against opposition, we need to possess an in-depth knowledge of our faith. Now, in an auditorium this size, a congregation of this size, there'll be varying degrees of knowledge. But here's what I want us to appreciate about this point. Do you know why you believe the things that you believe? Because in a world of opposition, when people start to press up against us, it it won't do to be able to say, well, my mom and dad said, or well, the preacher says. Well, in churches of Christ, they've always said, no, we will have to be able to give a biblical answer for why we believe the things we claim to believe. Because we won't be. Sometimes we read the book of Acts and we wonder what would I have done if I was living back then? And it's a good question to ask as you read through these accounts to say, what would I have done if I were Stephen or if I were Peter or James? But the reality is we do a lot of the same thing we're doing right now. If our knowledge is shallow now, it would have been shallow then. We wouldn't die for a faith that's foreign to us. If we don't know the scriptures, we won't know what we should be fighting for. Listen to Paul in Second Timothy one and verse 12. Paul says, for I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. Paul knew who he believed in and Paul knew what he believed. And if we're going to stand against the opposition, we need to know it as well. Possess an in-depth knowledge of our faith, that our faith is not simply handed down to us from other people, but it's personal. We own it. We embrace it. And we want to delve deeper into it. Stephen knows his Old Testament. He knows how to properly handle the scriptures aright, right and also how to dispense it to other people. And we need to do the same thing. This means studying our own Bible, getting to know the scriptures for ourselves. You know, people will mock us in our culture now. And I think it will only intensify in generations and in years to come. Do you really believe that God created the world in six days? You're a smart person. Don't tell me you believe that a man was swallowed by a fish and lived to tell the story. You don't believe that the entire world was drowned in the flood except for Noah and his three boys. And if we don't know why we believe the things that we claim to believe, we may shrink back. We may be tempted to compromise or give up those things altogether as maybe just stories having a moral benefit for us, but not based in historical and accurate truth. What Stephen knows is this. Stephen knows that his faith is to die for. And that's why when they start hurling rocks at Stephen, he's unafraid. Philippians one and verse 21, Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And as Stephen marches through the Old Testament, the thing that Stephen harps on is this. This faith is not new. It's what the prophets promised long ago as God inspired them. More than that, it's the faith that God had in mind before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1 and verse 4, 2 Timothy 1 in verse 9 says that God had the scheme of redemption through Jesus in mind before in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth ever happened. We need an in-depth knowledge of why we believe what we believe. As our world becomes more biblically ignorant and biblically illiterate, Christians need to know What does the Bible actually teach? Because as we meet people that say, I couldn't believe in a God that did this. As we expose the scriptures to them, what often will happen is we'll say, we don't believe in that God either. You've received the wrong information. That's not the God of the scriptures. He's been misrepresented, mischaracterized. And then we get an opportunity to Ephesians 415, speak the truth in love. Here's the next one. We need to make sure that we interpret the persecution properly. This may be the most important one for our time. Notice what happens to Stephen in Acts 7, verse 51 through 53. At this point, the preaching is over. And now Stephen is preaching directly to his audience, and it gets personal. Acts 7 and verse 51, Stephen says, You uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, just like your fathers did, so do you. But notice what Stephen does from verse 51 through verse 53. If you write in your Bible, underline these phrases. In verse 51, he says, You resist who? The Holy Spirit. In verse 52, he says you always resist the prophets. And then he says you resisted the prophets that told you about Jesus to come and you murdered him. In verse 53, he says which of the prophets have you not crucified or killed? And then in verse 53, you rejected the law that was given to you by the disposition of angels and you have not kept it. Now, listen, Stephen, in moments to follow these words, is going to suffer personally for his faith. But did you notice in verse 51 down through verse 53, he refuses to take it personally himself? Stephen doesn't say you you don't like me or that you hate me or that it's personal. Stephen says, I figured you folks out. You don't like God. You resist the Holy Spirit. The law was given to you by angels and you have a problem with the divine message. And that's why you have a problem with me. If we are going to stand against opposition and remain bold like God would have us to. We've got to make sure we interpret the persecution properly. Stephen doesn't take it personal, even though he's going to suffer personally for it. You remember when the people say we want a king so that we can be like the nations all around us. What does God tell Samuel in 1 Samuel eight and verse seven? They haven't rejected you. They have rejected who? Me, that I shouldn't reign as king over them. Beware of thinking that we're in some sort of culture war. And it's the conservatives versus the liberals or the Democrats versus the Republicans or the blacks against the whites or the Americans versus the Chinese. It's none of those things. According to Scripture, it's the savior against Satan. And though he does use many individuals and though he does costume his efforts in many different ways, it's the same battle that marches us all the way back to Genesis chapter three. And if we take it personally, we'll miss our opportunity to shine our light for Jesus. What Stephen does is he removes Stephen and he says, I figured it out. You have a problem with God. And as long as you're in opposition to God, you won't listen to anything I have to say. But he refuses to make it about Stephen. And so as Christians in a world of opposition, beware. I'm not saying don't name the opposition. I'm not saying individuals that commit sin that we shouldn't call it like it is. But what I am telling you is interpret the persecution properly. What Stephen realizes is ultimately it wouldn't matter who was preaching the sermon. It wouldn't matter who was there. They were in opposition to Jesus and his message. And that made all the difference in our time. We need to make sure that we interpret the persecution properly as well and realize that people that are in the darkness have their eyes blinded by Satan, 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, and they're not interested in the truth. But as long as we feel like it's us against them, we'll forget that we're involved in what the Bible calls a spiritual battle that doesn't use physical weaponry. In 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, Paul says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, not fleshly, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds And it's that that helps us to bring every thought into captivity and submission to Jesus Christ. In our world, when we're persecuted, let us remember to interpret it properly. Let us not make it about us versus them, but ultimately about them versus God. And God would have us to turn them toward him. Here's number five. Focus on pleasing God. Acts 7 and verse number 56, Stephen looks up into heaven and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And then in Acts 7 and verse number 59, He says, God, into your hands I commit my spirit, and then don't lay this sin to their charge. What Stephen does is he makes his aim, makes it his aim to ultimately please God. Many people have drawn parallels between the way Stephen dies and the way Jesus dies, and for good reason. In Luke 23, you remember... There are the false accusations against Jesus. There's the angry mob. But of course, the greatest parallels between Stephen and Jesus are the way they respond to the individuals that are doing them harm. What does Jesus say? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. What does Stephen say in verses 59 and 60? Lay not this sin to their charge. Same idea. Stephen looks up into the heavens. He sees Jesus and he makes it his goal to ultimately please him. He sees Jesus standing at God's right hand. And he realizes that God's watching the entirety of everything going on. And though he's preaching to Jews, he knows he's ultimately serving an audience of one. In 1 Thessalonians chapter two and verse four, Paul says, we preach the word and make it our aim not to please men, but ultimately to please God who examines our hearts. If we're going to be bold in the world of opposition, let us always live in such a way that no matter what happens, we'll be pleasing to God. That's our aim. That's our ultimate goal, to please God who's watching us, not to get the applause of other individuals or even to have the favor or curry the favor of those in our culture and the society in which we live. Am I pleasing to God? Have I done what God's told me to do? That means sometimes we won't be successful in winning people over. But even if we're not, if we glorify and please God, we've done our job. And that's exactly what Stephen does. He knows God sees. God's watching. God knows. And that's enough for Stephen. In Acts chapter four, when the church is persecuted initially in Acts four and verse twenty nine, they pray, Father, give us boldness that we might be able to withstand these individuals. And that's exactly what God provides for them in Acts four and verse thirty one. And they continue to preach the gospel and change their world because it was their goal to ultimately please God. And it needs to be our goal to do the same. Here's the sixth and final one tonight. Be sure to look beyond the present we would stand boldly in a world that opposes Christianity, in a world that may be more anti-religious than it's ever been in recent memory. Remember to look past the present. The way Acts chapter seven ends is that Stephen is stoned. They throw rocks at Stephen until he dies. And the reality is, I know you've got a New Testament open on your lap and you know how this story ends. But the facts of the matter are there is no way Stephen could have known. There's just no way in that moment as they were throwing rocks at Stephen and Stephen is looking up into the heavens. He sees Jesus at the right hand of God. And you remember when he cries out, don't lay this sin to their charge. There's no way Stephen on that day could have known what his death would spark. He couldn't have known that if you just ignore the chapter division and go into Acts chapter eight, that the Bible would say after they buried Stephen, Acts eight and verse four, those that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. I'm not telling you God needed Stephen to die for them to fulfill the Great Commission. But I am telling you that when he died, God used it. People went all over preaching the word. It is true that Stephen will meet people in heaven who never would have been there ever had he not died. And the apostles were pushed out of Jerusalem and Judea due to persecution. But in that moment, he couldn't have seen it. He couldn't have seen that this would be the spark, at least so far as Luke records it, that would change a young man's life who was standing there holding coats. And that man would go from a young man named Saul to the aged Apostle Paul and change the world. That the man that stood there, no doubt with a smile on his face as they threw rocks at Stephen, would go on to write 13 letters of the New Testament. In his first recorded sermon in Antioch of Pisidia, he preaches a sermon that's nearly identical to Stephen's. It's as if Paul was there taking notes. He preaches almost the same sermon verbatim and then is stoned himself in Derby and in Lystra. There's no way Stephen could have known that his death would be the turning point in which God would say, "Okay, I've had enough. I want to save Saul of Tarsus and use him as a weapon in my hand to win over the world for Jesus' sake. Stephen had to be looking past the present and we need to do the very same thing. If all that happens as a result of us facing our culture right now in a world of opposition is that more individuals become bold and courageous enough to share their faith. That's a win for us. If we can look past our moment and say, you know what, there's a generation coming up after us and we need to model Christian faithfulness and godliness and Christ likeness. Even when we're behind enemy lines, if that's all that happens, that'd be success enough. I'm just telling you, in that moment, there's no way Stephen could have known that in his dying, Christianity would live and go to places it never would have gone otherwise. That in the moment when he looked on people's faces who Luke tells us they were gnashing their teeth on him in that moment, he was at least looking at one brother in Christ in the face and he didn't know it at the time. And who knows, individuals who mock us and laugh at us and ridicule us, if we hold fast just like Stephen did, we may be. Unbeknownst to us, looking in the face of brethren who will spend eternity with us in heaven because we live like the one who was sent from there so that we might be able to go back. When you read Acts chapter six and Acts chapter seven, here's one thing that becomes apparent. It becomes apparent to me that Stephen paid really close attention when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. And when Jesus said, blessed are you that are persecuted for righteousness sake, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. When Stephen faced this persecution, everything Stephen did. From his spirit filled wisdom to the way he spoke to his knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, from his refusal to throw a pity party and even allowing his death to spark one of the greatest evangelistic efforts in the known world. What we know is Stephen heard Jesus and he responded well. And maybe our shock at the opposition we face says something about our failure to listen closely to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, this is what's going to happen to you if you follow me, but you don't have to lose. Colossians 123 says that by midway through the first century, everybody, every creature under heaven had heard the gospel. And that happened because even though their world was against Christianity, even though their world thought their faith was strange and foreign and false, they remained bold. And may we be charged and encouraged to do the world's changing all the time. It's not going to be the same for my kids and maybe for your grandkids and great grandkids. But here's what will be the same. They'll have something better than fair weather conditions. They'll have the same scriptures that convicted and converted us, and they'll have the presence of the same God. And that's far more important than anything else as far as our current cultural standing or a culture in which we can say people are favorable to Christianity. Maybe tonight somebody needs to obey the gospel. Believing that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and turning from sin... You can do that tonight. We'd be happy to assist you. If you need the prayers of the church, we'd be happy to pray with you and pray for you. Let us remain bold for Jesus this week. Think about individuals you can engage with, interact with, and point toward the Christ. And if we can help you, let us know how. As together we stand and as we sing.